right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. Got my guy, KVV. Uh, went viral on the interwebs this week with an article. Mm. Hello, Kevin. He's basking in the glow of his hot takes. Yes. I'm sure Twitter will be sending me a check any moment now for the 11 cents that I have generated for the platform. So it was very exciting. They really hooked you in with those early paychecks. And now we get like 40 bucks a month from them. But uh, <laughs> TC is here. Hello, TC. God, listen to this. The fake the fake news, failing golf media, worried about their their checks from X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days. It's almost like just Sad. like farming engagement on there is what's gonna get you the uh the most money and uh all of the all the views on there. It's wild how that new Twitter works. It's crazy. But do you think anybody's trying to gauge that like game that? Not in golf. Is there is anybody? Oh no. Not in golf. No, no, no. It's about the truth. Come on, Kevin. It's a, you gotta get it, you gotta get it right from the start. All right. So um, listen, you, you guys know the benefits of having foot joy on your feet, but the thermo series layering system, you can play more golf in more conditions to extend your season. TC, I think we're going to need this here in the, uh, in the coming days, we're going to head up to Georgia, play a little golf this week. I think we're going to need, uh, several different options to both, uh, pile on in to shed off the, it uh, never fails. Whenever we go up to Georgia, it is a low of about 32 I'm, it's but it, it's warmer than florida cold i'm just realizing it's sounding like we're going to augusta we are not going to I was gonna say, don't <laughs> don't pretend like you're going to, we're going to champions play. retreat no i'm kidding uh thermo series is the most advanced apparel layering system in golf anyone who lives or plays near anywhere that's cold knows it's about having the right layers this collection was made specifically for golf designed to work together so you can easily layer up or down as the conditions change. The base layer is fantastic. It is made for to keep you warm, but also to give you the most mobility. You need to swing freely, and no matter what layer you put over it or how many, you'll be comfortable all day long. This is technically advanced gear packed with performance stretch materials designed for the golf swing while providing warmth and comfort, which means when the temperature drops, you can take it low as well. Uh, those are the most frustrating days, those days where you might start out really cold and then it gets warm, uh, figuring out what mix to go with. Uh, but you can go to footjoy.com and you can stock up on those layers and be prepared for anything. Uh, with Thermo Series, as the day evolves, you can evolve with it. Uh, so uh, I'm wearing personal, the Thermo Series right now, the hoodie. That? Get this really cool uh, hoodie. It's nice and Personal cool endorsement house. for the vest. The vest is Wow, fire. that means a lot. Like I'm, a, I'm very picky on my vests. It's it's got this it's super thin so it doesn't restrict you at all but it's got this really cool fleece liner on the inside it's the bomb got a little bit to talk about here uh, we have an interview uh, about halfway through here with Mike Juan and Martin Slumbers of the USGA and RNA about the ball rollback uh, that came out this week which feels like it was four months ago KBV is going to read uh, a audio version of his essay as well the viral one that we talked about that'll be on the end of this podcast. Uh, but first, we have some news on the PGA Tour front. Um, speaking of evolving with it as the day evolves, so some news broke here at the end of the day Sunday. Some kind of news. I'm not really positive. It's it's. Uh, I, I guess the news here is the PGA Tour Policy Board has unanimously selected an outside investment group to further negotiate with as talks with the PIF continue to progress. Uh, there was they were you know they were deciding between several different investment groups and they have decided to move forward with Strategic Sports Group SSG. Uh, this was announced Sunday in a memo 
two tour members. Uh, the update followed a series of policy board meetings over the past several days that featured a thorough review of the, quote, extremely strong final proposals uh, submitted by several outside investors. SSG is a consortium. Uh, consortium? How do you say that one? Consortium. Consortium. Yeah. consortium. It, you know consortium. what? It depends on if you're American or if you're British. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Hey, uh, of U.S.-based professional sports team investors, uh, the memo further stated, we anticipate advancing our negotiations with PIF in the weeks to come. Further, the DP World Tour will continue to be an important part of the process as we build toward PGA Tour enterprises. The memo declined to further uh, to release further details, but said the board is very confident in an eventual positive outcome for all players in the PGA Tour as a whole. Wrapping up here, the investors who comprise the strategic sports group, Mark Antanasio, Arthur Blank, Jerry Cardinal, Cardinal, am I saying that right, TC? I know you know all these guys personally, probably fly around with them a lot, but Cohen Private Ventures, Fenway Sports Group, Mike Gordon, uh, Wick Grousebeck, John Henry, High Post Capital, Mark Lazary, Tom Ricketts, and Tom Werner. Uh, TC, boy, what does this all mean? What does this news mean tonight? You got like seven pro sports owners there, all sorts of Fenway sports group dudes. Uh, you got the owner of the Celtics, the Cubs, the Bruins, you know, FC Liverpool, all that stuff. But, you know, it's funny how quickly this seemed to happen after wow. the events of, uh, of December 7th, right? Listen, at some point, you know, I, I assume that this means that things are, are finally moving towards a, a logical conclusion now that, you know, Jay somehow seemingly can't even mess this one up. I would, I, do. I would not declare that. I cannot believe you would, uh, you would declare that I, at this point. I do find <laughs> it funny that it's a bunch of Boston guys, you know, and hopefully my guy, uh, uh, what's the PGA tour superstore guy's name, Dick something, uh, Dick Williams, Arthur no, Blank's guy. No, not yeah. Dick the, Williams. uh, Dick Williams, the uh, general true. manager of, uh, the, the Atlanta drive. Okay. Um, Hopefully he's involved there with A and B enterprises, but uh, no, I think it's, you know, overall it's good news. I, I think it's, you were starting to hear a lot of rumors about big tone about uh, Dick Sullivan, Hatton, other things of that nature. And, you know, who knows how substantiated those are, but, but what does that even mean at this point? What does that mean though? TC at this point, like tone, like, Big Tone and Tyrrell Hatton potentially maybe already going to live. By by Tony's quotes of his answer, it sounded like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to comment on it. Or what, I forget what he said exactly. He's gone, right? But like, what, is, what does that mean at this point? Like, if is there a deal in place? What What is, uh, why isn't like everyone going to live? I'm struggling to like make sense of it all at this point. I mean, it seems like at some point Yasser would stop paying people to come to live if he feels like there's a deal. Whereas the ROM one felt like, all right, there's, you got to bring the tour back to the table and quickly. Right. And I feel like he's done that. He's strengthened his negotiated, uh, platform or position. And, uh, you know, it seems like things are moving towards everybody coming back together in some form or fashion. I guess I just wonder, what does that mean? Like, well, that, does that mean we'll see Rom at like the tour champions? Like, I, you know, it's just, it's hard to even conceptualize like what the agreement will say at this point, right? I assume it's all for 2025, but it had to be wild if, like, you know, Rom signs would live and then he turns up at the century to, you know, warm <laughs> up for his live yet. season. He's not he's exactly. right. suspended yeah, he it off yet. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, you know, Yasser and Jay, it sounds like they're scheduled to meet next week, I guess, now, or this, this week. Someone from the PGA week, Tour, yeah. or yeah, this week, I guess. Um, you know, it's what, December. 11th when this comes out on monday so 
you know, 20 more days to the very inconsequential deadline, you know, assuming that they want to hit that. If not, they can extend it more. But uh, it seems like Yasser's the captain now. I'll, I'll put it that way. It certainly does. It's been a, uh, a you know, such a weird up and down. I, I guess if I was to try to summarize what happened here, I was very, very confused. And I voiced that confusion uh, after the framework agreement was announced uh, when it was written in pencil, basically, I guess I, I probably over overvalued that piece of paper that they signed back around June 6th uh, to say like, hey, uh, they're you know, control of this new entity is going to lie with the PGA Tour. And they're going to do a cost-benefit analysis in some way of uh, of live and decide what to do in the future. That was that to me read like live was done and it was over with. And I was very confused when Yasser went the next week and told all the live guys like, no, no, it's not going away. It was like, kind of like, okay, well, all right, that doesn't really seem like you guys are really on the same page with all that. And then uh, the tour players got all up in arms about the deal and went to say, well, why don't we go look into other private equity options? That seemed to piss off Yasser on that side. The two sides did not seem close together. Uh, at all and it comes to a head here with using Ron as the, a massive 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 negotiation uh, uh, pawn in the negotiation and all of a sudden we're we're heading towards this thing finally getting finalized but again I, all that means nothing to me if it doesn't mean the best players are getting back on the on the on the course at the same time right which is why I'm asking like what does this mean about Finau and Hatton going to live like they just played 2024 with live and then all of a sudden 25 we have this new tour, whatever that looks like, uh, it, you know, are Finau and, and Brahm and all these guys going to be hitting shots with live past 2024. Like I, I don't see how there's a deal done. Uh, I don't think like the PJ tour is folding up into live. Am I wrong yeah. about that? It just seems like you can't really split the baby either. Right. Cause the thing's not valuable enough, like in one part, much less trifurcated or bifurcated into different you know, disparate parts, right? Like all the value of somebody wanting to come in and invest in this would be predicated upon the global game, everything. So I think, you know, reading between the lines, it seems like this is a win for global golf. I think it may be a, a loss for U.S. golf just because there may not be as much of a schedule here in the States, stateside domestically. But that said, there's probably too many tournaments to begin with here domestically, you know, as it is. So, uh, who knows? We'll see, you know, how they manage to muck this one up. But it seems like a, the first step forward in a while for the tour. If you're TC, though, Arthur Blank or John Henry or, or Steve Cohen, are you really going to invest in like a, a global thing? I, I think you want some guarantee that like a big part of the U.S. product, which is sort of a proven thing that it is can make money. Or isn't that, you know, part of what you want out of this? Like, I, I guess I would want to know. How much of the like clearly the, the PIF is and Yasser is going to have a major say in whatever happens, right? And but is are they going to be satisfied with you know having ten percent of all this, right? Or are they going to be satisfied? With, no, no, no. We want fifty one percent of all this. And are the players going to sort of be okay with that? I would say a lot of these billionaires are getting involved with the idea of like, all right, the only way this is going to pass Justice Department muster is if we're throwing our hat in this and we want to see the what some version of the PGA tour survive. Maybe that means it's hundred people or 70 people or 50 people and we'll play some global golf, but we're not really going to just turn it entirely into a global tour. I, that would surprise me because if I'm Tom Ricketts or I'm Stephen Cohen, like I'm not 
all that interested in putting up a tournament in Adelaide or China or wherever. I'm wanting to sort of say like, yeah, no, we should have the best players here and we should have them in Boston. We should have them in Philadelphia. We should have them in Florida. Well, I think there's a difference between having them in, in Philadelphia, Boston, Florida. Like I totally agree with you and having them in the quad cities or having them in, you know, uh, trying to think where like, you know, Hartford, Connecticut, like it seems like there's that stuff's still going to go on. It just seems like at some point you also fold in, you know, kind of whether it's the best DP world tour events or, you know, the best events on the PGA tour. And then some of the other ones like corn Ferry, kind of becomes, you know, like the bottom half of the PGA tour schedule kind of becomes a feeder tour. Same with, same with the DP world tour. I would assume the Asian tour as well. And, you know, everything feeds up to this thing that's kind of bolted onto the top. Sally, do you agree? I do. And I, again, I just, I feel like I've said this 35 times over the last two years, like to what does Piff and what do Yasser want out of this, right? Like they want the U S like that's, that's always been the thing. He wants an Augusta membership. He is, they have a seat at the table. They've run how many of their events have been in the U S like when they claim to be like the global tour, like, no, they want the U S capital markets. They don't want U S golf. They want like the capital markets of the United States. Right. So, uh, that again, it, it, if these, if Piff and all of this investor group are going to be on the same page, like ignore the PGA Tour for that sake. Like the PGA Tour is so broken and so fucked. Like the only two people playing by actual real rule, real markets are the investors and Yasser and Piff, right? Like they're the ones that can actually like look at this from a 10,000 uh, foot view. The PGA Tour is so mired in a structure that just has to change that they they have no negotiating power in all this. But like these two groups are going to probably, if they're going to partner up, their interests are going to be somewhat in common, right? And I don't think any of these groups are signing up for any more internal warring factions of, no, these guys are only going to play on live and these guys are going to play on the PGA Tour. PGA Tour Enterprises, I believe is what it was called in the memo. I just... I don't know how you don't all get together and like again, like I was saying last week, like start making common sense out of professional golf world because I, none of the ROM stuff makes sense unless it's about negotiation. None of the Fino stuff makes sense about unless it's about negotiation. And uh, I, I, I'm just obviously like re getting, reading the sentiment online. Like people are done with this, like absolutely done with all of this, and it needs to start coming back together and. I see. I don't see any way that it makes sense. These groups, I'll, I'll do this, and it doesn't come together. If you're Yasser at this point, why do you need anybody else? All these people talking about, oh, Hovland's next, like you know, funny now, whatever. I, I, look, I, I might want to have Rom fill out his team and whatever, but I don't. I wouldn't give a shit about. I don't need to sign Victor Hovland for three hundred million dollars if, like, I'm getting twenty percent of this next deal, and then I'm going to bring everything together in twenty twenty five. I'm just like, yeah, it'll we'll figure it out. But I, don't, I mean, unless money is just totally irrelevant, and you can say to whomever you have to answer to like yeah i need another 500 million to sort of you know just for fun just to well, it's one of those things where people. he's basically he's basically shown he's displayed that hey i can keep doing this as long as you want me to i mm -hmm. could i could spend another 300 million on hovland i could spend another you know get whoever the next guy coming up is right but it's it's one of those things it's like all right so come back to the table so that's where going back to what you said kvv like it's the 10%, like how big of a slice of the pie does he get, right? And what is that worth and what does that get as far as the schedule goes? But it's still only worth something to him in negotiation, right? Because I'm, I am sorry, like Rom is not going to change the viewership numbers tangibly and from totally. to live, right? And like, that's just what, like the, 
again, the very dumb corner of the golf world internet, like thinks this is like this massive game changing thing. It is for negotiations hundred percent. And they have PGA tour in the most wildly vulnerable position possible. As you can see that this thing coming together in just a couple of days after the romp uh, situation. But like, again, this is like the end game for, for Yasser can't be for his 130,000 yeah. viewers to become 200,000. Like, and that's a massive increase off the backs of Ram, which I would not expect to actually happen. So again, Always thinking of this of what the end game actually would be. I think live continues to exist in some way. Like I think it is either a seasonal thing or I, I don't know if it goes all the way. I just don't see one. I don't think all the best players in the world are going to end up playing in this format, whatever it is. And I don't think it's going to be. At the, and I also don't think it's going to be under the same umbrella. Um, guys like half the team, half the guys playing on live and half the guys playing the, the global tour or whatever it is. Yeah, we'll see. But that would be common sense. But that would be common sense, and that has not ruled the day for multiple years in this. In this, but you're totally right as far as like, what does Yasser want? He wants a seat at the table. He wants to be part of the larger. Which they thing, gave not- him that, and he is also like, well, now that I have that, I might as well grab a little bit more of this table, right? Well, it seems I'm like for that, like he's like the he fourth. may not be you know satisfied with fifteen percent of it. He wants forty two percent of it or whatever, you know. So we'll see what value these guys bought in with i I think it's interesting that that jay has all of his old boston friends kind of at the at the at the table here trying to save an american business tc (laughs) (laughs) they're patriots which dude like the idea of fucking goon of these guys like advising on this and like seeing this through to the finish line instead of like peter malnati like being a conduit for like the mules and having a say in this, I feel a lot better about that. Like a lot, a lot better about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't count the mules out yet. Oh, they'll they'll try. Oh, I'm not counting them out. I'm just saying like, they are going to be, the voice is going to get diminished here pretty quickly. I know the mules have been, been standing on the back of the range, trying to, trying to whip some votes, (laughs) you know? Uh, So yeah, I think that, I think the, uh, you know, it'll be super interesting to see kind of how this dovetails with the PIF negotiations. I don't know. I, and I mean, it's just funny to me. Like they misspelled Mark, Mark Antanasio's name. It was Mark with a C. They misspelled it as instead of M-A-R-K. He, he owns the Brewers, DJ's Brewers, of course. And uh, it's like, hey, man, like how about some fucking details here? How about everybody how about needs copy a, editors? A little bit more detail oriented pga tour like it's it's just so emblematic of everything that they're about and everything that they've done over the last three years like can we get some adults into the room please i think this has to do that right like (laughs) i don't read these names and think uh that we're adding more more children into this but um anything else on this front um to discuss before i mean i'm sure something else will have broken by the time this is out by monday morning so um want to talk a little grant thornton please Guys, I, I have to admit, I was I was quite excited about this when it was announced. Uh, everything that happened this past week just had me. I was watching it today, and I watched some yesterday. I was like, "What? Why? Like, what are we? What are we doing here? Like, everything that's happened over this past week has like neutered my excitement even for this crossover PGA Tour LPGA uh, event that which was down in Naples this past week. I feel like there was next to no buzz about it. I didn't hear anyone talk about it on social media just as the golf world was blowing up. But Lydia Ko and Jason Day. Uh, win the event at 26 under par. How much of this did you guys catch this week? I watched quite a bit uh, on Saturday. But did you? Yeah. I watched the the final round today. I was uh, probably from, I wouldn't say I watched the whole thing, but I watched the the back nine. Uh, 
And, you know, like I have uh, a little bit of a sort of, I guess, personal connection to Lydia Ko. Not only did I profile her years ago at ESPN the magazine and spent, you know, two, three hours with her. She, you know, if some people remember when we went to the US Open this year, she kind of waved my daughter over and let my daughter and I walk uh, in the ropes with her for practice round and was talking to my daughter and, you know, asking her about her own golf game. And so I came away from that uh, being like, Lydia Co might be the nicest person in all of golf. Like, I am so happy to see her find some confidence. It was a weird year last year. I feel like people didn't even really realize because her her ranking didn't plummet quite as much maybe as it should have. But she didn't have like a top 30 finish for like eight months or something bonkers. Like she fell really off of her perch from starting the year at number one, didn't win at all. So just I feel like to see her hit that shot into 17 uh, was really awesome. You know, it's like a five wood or a hybrid couldn't quite tell uh but just smoked it you know 210 really soft fade in there and, and setting up the sort of winning birdie in this i just felt really kind of excited for her it's a big purse i mean yeah they won 500 grand a piece you know the format was fine there were some tough tough scores out there in the scramble <laughs> uh which was kind of kind of funny but i think the i don't know it just felt like a half measure which i guess you got to start with but you know, it's juiceless. Some of that's Naples. Uh, some of that's, pro- you know, the second time they've had a ladies tournament down there in the last three weeks, right? Uh, not the most dynamic course, Tiburon. Um, weird, weird bunkering there. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's actually a Greg Norman design. Uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things Exciting. where it's like, it felt like, it feels like this this event could be so much better than it is, but it just felt like kind of an afterthought. And I don't, but I, but I don't want to bite the hand that feeds of saying, you know, hey, it's taken them this long, two yeah. decades to get a co-ed event back on the schedule. It just seems like, guys, let's let's maybe bump this to a more favorable slot in the season or make, I mean, shit, make the Zurich this or, you know, something that's during golf season that's, that's at a place where you can have some fans that there's, you know, it's near a major metro that's not, you know, 12 teams or however many teams this was, 16 teams, you know, the format was fine. It was what scramble and then alt shot yesterday and then uh, modified four ball today where they, they switched balls for their second shots. That <laughs> was interesting. Uh, Allison Corpus and Cam Champ shot 78 in alt shot, <laughs> which was, which was tough, but you know, it just, I don't know. It was cool, but it just didn't really, it didn't really move the needle a whole lot. And I don't think that's that's a factor of the co-ed thing. I, I just think, hey, you're going up against NFL football. You're going up against yeah. nothing moves you know, the, the needle this time tournament. of year. Nothing yeah, does. It's just, you're in between Tiger weeks as well. Like again, that's yeah. not a reason not to do it. It just kind of felt like, you know, I, I we've been hyping this and have been asking for this for quite some time. I I wish it had came at a different time, just in terms of what was going on in the golf world, and just everything got sucked mm-hmm. up into that vacuum. And if it had its own like time to shine, and honestly, if it if it had Tiger involved in it too, I think it could have uh, it could have been a totally different. It, ne- it needed some more headlining names uh, on the men's side, I think, to to really kind of get some buzz. With, on res- it, with respect to Ludwig, you know, since he went out and shot sixty today. That was Ludwig and Madeline shot twenty eight on the back nine today. Kind of made a charge. Uh, Corey Connors, Brooke Henderson. Came in second, lost by a shot. They had a double on third hole today. Also two eagles on the on the front nine. But uh feel like they they kind of let this one through their grasp a little bit. It looked yeah. like everyone that played genuinely enjoyed it. Like they like mm-hmm. 
that I think it's a probably a you know, I, again, I don't know how well that all translates to TV, but a really great experience for both yeah. sides, both the men and the women that got to play in it. I feel like they were uh, uh, everyone kind of came off the, the course kind of buzzing in a way that you don't usually see them. So team golf is fun. Yeah, I think I, go, I read in uh, yeah, I read uh, Gabby Herzig wrote a story for SI that said that uh, they sold twice as many tickets uh, this year than they did for the QBE stuff than Good. last year. They just had Lexi and to replace the QBE yeah. is a huge win because that was yeah. one of the worst things. In sports, I've been I've been to the QB <laughs> twice, uh, just because my wife's from Naples and it's bleak. It was really bleak, especially when like Chris DeMarco was teeing it up. You know, hey, it's my guy. Ten years after his prom, you know, ten years after he kind of lost his card, like it was it was a tough tough field. So this was this was a step in the right direction, for sure. Rory's back on Twitter. He's clapping back at people. Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Firing shit out. Um, he responded say, to someone saying the best thing to happen to the 2023 Euro Ryder Cup team was Henrik going to live. Uh, a lot of people got really upset about this and really bothered by it. Uh and Poulter and Westy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which DC, I got enjoy, I enjoyed your dig on that one. Oh, it was great. I mean, that's that's like one of my favorite gifs out there. The uh the uh, boxing raffle. Are you talking about the? No, the one uh, you're digging. The, you're digging the uh, majestics. The oh yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like <laughs> you know, if people want to argue that Liv is serious, cool, go for it. Be my guest. Like I'm a, you know, you know, I'm a big cliques fan. But like majestics, like you guys are fucking awful. And mm-hmm. at some point, like results matter. And Westwood, Holter, and Stenson are All three cap- captains <laughs> on one of the worst teams in the league. It had spent like probably top top three or top four payroll in the league that's right guys that's not good you see the biggest respect that you can pay to live is calling them out constantly and just shitting all over that team until it gets better i mean it you know if manchester united was down would people just be like well they're trying no they'd go after them so yeah, thank, just thank like you. push push is going for your service yeah manchester united team yeah i don't know it's it's you know again all of the cliques fans we wait with bated breath to see what happens if they do Rom's team as an expansion franchise, or if they rebrand the cliques, I saw that they they had the uh, the thirty six hole uh, qualifying tournament, the final round today. You saw I, I know your boy Chris Stroud missed the cut, uh, the fir- the first round cut. He needed me there, uh, yeah, as well as a few other kind of PGA Tour luminaries. Did you see they had um, like a rules dispute, TC, like late in the did. round, and they were like arguing in the fairway? Like, what Slugger White couldn't be woken up for this? Like, what isn't that exactly what you hired Slugger to do? Is like sort out these rules issues, and there's just not anywhere to be found. The guys, the guys protected the field. I give him credit. They, uh, the guy trying to take a scummy job got got back down. Uh, my guy Kaye Samoya, uh, the Finnish guy, got through. Kieran Vincent, one of the best aesthetics in all of golf, got through. Uh, you got, you got to think that, you know, one, at least one of those guys is, is probably gonna, gonna make his way to the cliques, uh, if not both. So if I understood see. how the teams come together, I might be able to add more <laughs> onto that, but, uh, one of them might get traded for the, the defending champion for all we know. So <laughs> the last question I'll have on the, on the, on that front is like, what, what is stopping an insane wave of guys just going for a cash grab for one year? Like if everything's going to come together, what is preventing guys from doing it? Is it truly just Yasser not offering everyone a contract? Got to be logistics of it, right? Like, how That's do you just question. fold in ten more teams? Like, I, no, I but even the, I don't know. I mean, what about you know the cliques have two spots, right? Just raising your hand and saying, "Hey, I'm gonna pl- I want to play for 
mean, I guess the purses are kind of, you know, if you're one of the top 50 or 70 guys on tour, is it kind of trading you're, like for like, even though the depth's if, a lot better on tour? Let's say you're Hovland and you don't think the OGR stuff is going to get sorted out anytime soon. Do you just trade a year of not playing in majors for 250 million? Like, well, you, you can know. still play the majors. He would still, still be qualified in. He'd still be in, I guess, some top 50. But uh, is there anybody who would be like it, a borderline? Well, I think I would imagine some of it has to deal with endorsements, right? Because mm. endorsements, the way they structure a lot of those contracts, to my knowledge, is PGA Tour starts. So would Ricky be – Ricky would be someone like that, right? At least, I mean, he'd still probably be in all the majors from to be in top 50, but it would be more realistic that he might miss one if he – I don't know. And he was certainly flirting with the live stuff for a while. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just feel like these guys, you, you kind of open up a can of worms if you're going over there. You better be, you, you better be getting more than enough money on the front end to justify some of your endorsements taking a hit, just from a pure contractual language standpoint of not, not meeting your minimum starts on your contracted tour. Yeah. What did you guys think of the reaction to Rom going now that it's been a couple of days? I, I got to admit, I took a spin through his like announcement tweet on there. I was blown away at the vitriol. I kind of had thought yeah. people had gotten past a lot of the stuff and the sentiment was overwhelmingly drastically negative. Like people like furious about the whole thing. And it made it all that much more bizarre to me. I don't know what I was expecting, but it just felt like Rom has had his finger on the pulse the whole time. And uh, the middle finger he's thrown at, at golf fans through all this is uh, at, at basically aim Lynch called it out too. like his greed is what drove this. Right. And he, he's the person I did not identify as being exceptionally greedy. And uh, I don't know, may I, maybe we were too kind to him, honestly, in the reaction pod uh, on Thursday. I know we were trying to look at like the more of the macro view of it, but um, I don't know that, that, that reaction was, was kind of sh surprising to me. KVV. I think it just goes to your, like what you've kind of, tried to draw on for, for your column was just people are just tired of it all. Right. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it's just unmitigated, you know, whether or not like, yeah, Jay certainly gave these guys, you know, an out and, and you know, not really playing the moral high ground anymore, but at the same time for Rom to say it was about innovation and <laughs> growing the game, like get the fuck out of here, man. Like, you yeah. know, like you're going to go play in some tournaments that five or 600 fans are going to, you know, and I get that there's a few that are, they're not. They're, a, they're not tournaments, TC. He said that also. Fifty-four hole shot, uh, no cuts. Not a tournament. <laughs> not a golf tournament. That's his own word. I don't. I do not think people like when people sort of pretend to be one thing and then reveal to me. I, I think that's probably what drives a lot of the Mickelson vitriol in general. Is that for years he sort of presented himself as one thing and then suddenly it was like, oh, you know, I'm actually I'm the black hat. I'm not the sort of charming good guy. And I think that's had to do with some of Rom. I mean, imagine if Rory had taking the ROM deal. I think the vit the vitriol would be enormous. Enormous. I think people would be bigger. so, so upset. And so to see ROM take some of it, even though the you can sit here and be like, oh, the nuances of it all. Or you John never like can't trash. He can't change his mind. He can't change his mind. Yeah. But that's a, such a minority of people. Like, again, part of like why the reason I wrote what I did and the way I did it was sort of like, yeah, you guys, when we step outside this bubble, people are pissed off. Like they are just fed up with it. And they're like, fuck golf. Like I do not need to follow golf on a week to week basis. If you're telling me all these people are probably going to be in the majors anyway, then what do I care? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and watch two divided different tours. I'm not going to search it out on the, if it's going to be a remotely difficult, it's hard enough to 
search it out on the PGA Tour stuff, and that was way easier than you know the live stuff. So I'm just gonna say forget it. I think that's sort of proving to be how the reaction is. It's just people don't that th- you you can tell me over and over and over again. Oh, there's this money involved and this money involved. Fans do not give a shit. They will not tune in for a money thing because there really there's no difference between a million dollars and ten million dollars in the eyes of a fan. They just want to either have some reason to care, and money is not going to be it. Which, and, and I would say KVV, taking that a step farther, it almost feels like people aren't even mad anymore. They're just apathetic and walking mm-hmm. away. And that's 10 times yeah. worse than being mad. Well, like Rom, yeah, sure. yeah, Rom went on McAfee on Friday, and they just like all lapped it up about how much money he was making all that. And that was like one of the most biggest middle fingers to the fans is again we're not rooting for your personal wealth like enter, you're an athlete you're supposed your job's to entertain us like that's uh, not- <laughs> unless you're otani and then we're we're all like all right good, good for you man but no one was yeah no one was like oh it's so sick though that otani got that deal that's awesome they were like oh man it's be fun to watch otani play for the dodgers it's fun to watch him play for the good la team i just it's tell you right that mcafee thing was gross and i, I think you know Look, I, I'm a former ESPN person. Obviously, I have a lot of friends there and stuff. But like turning over so much of your face of your network to Pat, to me, I mean, Pat's very talented. He's good at what he does. But I it just, I can't help but feel like there's a lot of people being turned off by that kind of thing. It's just like, oh, yeah, how, how sick is it that you're just sticking it in everybody's face and you're joking about, oh, is it 400 million or 600 million? Man, why would that make me want to watch Liv? That's the part that bothered me. It was, it was obviously and clearly so pro, like athlete. Of like yeah we like he's a he's a professional athlete and like we're you know we saying saying we like me like him and rom like we make our money you know from professional sports like good for you man happy for you but like also dude like you're you're representing like sports fans here and like part of like part of the conversation here and not to mention espn is a freaking partner of the pga tour like for uh, for uh espn plus that that whole thing had was just i don't know it was really not the story uh, i didn't think the story is is you know pissed off again if there if there were people that actually cared about this league then that would be an interesting thing if it was driven by market forces this league all right anyways we can get lost on this real real quick i i do want to commend say what you want about the guy i know he's got his detractors out there having rory Acting like a real human being again on Twitter. That's great. On Twitter, like it, that's that's why I liked Rory in the first place. For sure, right? And and you know, being candid and speaking your mind a little bit, even if you're going to catch some flack, I like that. I think that's that's pro fan, right? That's pro. Yes. You know, that's like, that's why you know. Again, like you said, there's definitely people he has rubbed the wrong way in all of this, but like from the jump, publicly and privately. Like Rory cares about like entertaining the golf fan. Like he retweeted your article, Kevin, like he, he right which was just like a middle finger to everyone involved in golf. Like your article basically was. And he, re- he reshared that. He's like, dude, the golf fan here needs to like, we need to address this. And I'd be mm-hmm. stunned with the influence that he has. If it doesn't get addressed in some way, I was like, I feel like I've said a million times too. I was rooting for the PGA tour throughout all of this. Cause I felt like it was the best chance at competitive golf, like entertaining us. I lost a lot of that faith on June 6th. Uh, and I've definitely lost even more of that faith since then so as things continue to, you know, just dwindle, but maybe it has fallen apart to the level that it can, it can get reconstructed and, um, uh, in a way that can be good for like, just like passable product for, for golf. Fans. Like it's gotten to the point almost that I'm kind of almost rooting for Yasser to just, just, finish these guys off man 
and like so so that something springs up in their place or that everything gets brought back together because like Monahan and the gang they've they've proven they're not it we're just gonna keep getting shortchanged and it's like hey let's just let's just burn this thing down quickly so something else can rise in its place just like um, it's a demo it's a full demo and rebuild the rebuild the, yeah. the structure right yeah. i do oh honestly i was thinking about this today though is there a charitable element of the pga tour enterprises that survives in any way like are all these charities going to totally potentially get completely like hung out to dry i don't want to cut you, i don't stuff. want to cut you off can, can we explore that in a different few i've i've been beaten down so much that if you start to tell me like oh yeah all also on top of this all the charities are going to get like stripped down yeah. that that's gonna that might be what breaks me right i mean i'm not gonna <laughs> pretend to be the most philanthropic philanthropic person but like holy fuck there's so much shit to work out from all this and that is a depressing one i feel like the individual tournaments care about the charities and and you know a lot of the players do a lot to support that stuff but to a certain extent through the actions of the pga tour over the last few years and seeing how they've kind of treated certain things and yes they netted up some of the host organizations through covid and stuff but seeing how they've handled you know a reduction in pro-am slots or this or that it's i don't think that they give as much of a shit about the charities as we think other than it gives them a massive 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 tax break right true and, but that money is still going to the charities like it's it is. you know yeah. it, even though there, there might be a benefit obviously there is a huge benefit to the tax element of it but what if it just eliminates entirely if it's a wholly for-profit thing and all of a sudden you're saying you know hey there's sorry there's no money for you we, we're not doing the 501c6 anymore like it's just impossible for us to run an actual business like that i mean i, I would think that would be such a massive pr hit that they would not they would not try to do it but if you're talking about burning it down and rebuilding it i don't know that you would ever like it's not like the nba or the nfl is giving out you know an equal distribution of charity money for the profits that they bring in so there has to be some massive change to it so i was i was kind of curious about this the the wells fargo news made me think oh yeah we well, maybe you have a better a better understanding of this so as wells fargo basically said they're, they're leaving as a title sponsor uh after this year because from the reporting i think josh carpenter was the first person to sort of get this that they said that they could go above 20 million but they couldn't get to 25 and the pj tour basically said well you can't do it then and they said we're we're good then we cannot go higher we can go north of 20 we can't get to 25 we, they, we could they tried to essentially i'm sure settle somewhere in the middle 22 23 but that wasn't good enough i like what are these tournaments going to do? I, 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 and the question I guess I have for you is, is it mandated like the payouts all the way down where if someone said to me, look, all right, we can do 20, I would just basically say like, all right, you know what? The bottom guys aren't going to get paid nearly as much, if at all. Like we're going to shift the, the burden of the money going up top to the people who are bringing in the fans and we're going to make it more. Oh, you want to piss off oh, the God. Well, I mean, I feel Mess bad for the Because I think the distribution is mandated by – that's what Poor I would say. Laws. It must be mandated, right? Yes. Because, like, why would you pay out the lower division guys in this sort of remixing? Why wouldn't you just make it more <laughs> cutthroat and basically say, like, hey, hey that's a great you know, question. You want to win that money? Play, play better. That is God, a Nate Lashley's going to show up at your doorstep tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, I Bonto. just don't. As someone who spent their entire like twenty years of their career covering other sports, like without a collective bargaining, I don't quite get why if you're having money problems 
at the top. So Why are you saying? <laughs> yeah, but like the bottom guy said, you're you better show me you're bringing in some revenue, or I'm just going to shift this money to the top Remember guys. Like Aaron Rodgers, baby. Pat Mahomes gets paid a shit ton of money. LeBron James get paid a shit ton of money. Yules Nobody's like, too. <laughs> they vote, but like, I just, shit. There's I, a lot of them too. A lot of mules out there, man. I, I feel, but listen, I'm sure there's some listening out there. I'm not trying to steal your money. I'm just saying, like. <laughs> There has to be somebody We're out actually there actually trying to protect your money, throwing this ideas around. And how do they, you know, how do they figure that out? Because legitimately, like Stroud complaining, and then you look, and he's won thirteen million dollars over the course of his career. Man, for like what you've returned to the league in terms of your value, that to me is about ten million dollars too much. Now, I'm sure you would think differently, but there's tons and tons of like twelfth guys on the NBA bench who don't make the thirteen millions over over the course of their career. So how do you sort of square that with how do, how do you, if you're a mule, how do you defend why well, still deserve all that money, even though nobody is interested in seeing me? Is well, you think the depth of fields is that important? Because you're a mule. In the you're, hospital you're, visits. Yeah. Shout out to That's Ryan where the Armour. mule quote came from. I, I didn't, I saw, um, uh, Lonzo Griffin was on foreplay this week. I did not, I saw only saw the social clip on it, but in the social clip, he was saying like, oh, I mean, look at if I'm a 150 bank player, look at the 150 bank player in the NBA or the NFL or MLB. This like, this NBA. is not that, dude. <laughs> Holy shit. How can you possibly miss it this widely? Uh, anyway, that's so. All right. So Wells Fargo real quick. So they're dropping their sponsorship after 24. Like if Wells Fargo and some of these other like some of the biggest co- companies in the country, in the biggest economy in the world are saying, you know what? We can't afford this. This is outrageous. We can't afford this. We're going to go spend our, our sports marketing dollars elsewhere. Like that's a massive canary in the coal mine here of this thing is so bloated. And why would you you be signing up with the tour right now before any of this got settled anyways? Like who would be giving money to them right now? Totally. Like it's like, yeah. Why would you ever re up for anything knowing that the schedule could be totally different and they just keep jacking it up and jacking it up and jacking it up. I thought Eamon Lynch had a great column of kind of, you know, drawing the same things that you did, KBV, of like, hey, like the greed of John Rom is one thing, but the greed of like all these other players who want to be compensated like the guys who left for live, that's an even bigger problem. It's like right? the equalization. A irrational you know, actor added into this is totally fucked pro golf. It is totally messed up what these guys think they're worth. And it's, God, dude, it someone's gonna pay a huge price when the when yeah. the market levels itself. It's probably gonna be the mules. They're gonna get skinned. Oh, uh, you know it's you know what though? Shout out to the tour. Sure enough, they signed Cognizant to be. I was gonna say that that sponsor. should have headlined of the uh, the former Honda Classic, the Palm Beach. What it was gonna be the, the Palm classic Beach. and the Palm Beaches. Yeah, we barely knew ye. <laughs> Cognizant uh, is the one company that's spending money with the tour right now. But uh, yeah, that's so, coming to, your, your you move, know. Yasser. <laughs> we yeah. You know, to, the tour is bringing that to their championship management. People played out exactly like that, you know, anonymous tournament director said of like, yeah, you know, you watch the tour is going to try to toot their own horn and say, hey, we, we came to the rescue here. Cognizant's a massive, uh, massive sponsor of the President's Cup. We're going to bring in tournament director from President's Cup to kind of do this as well. And, Da, 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 and you know, sure enough, it happened pretty much just like that. And you know what? I don't begrudge like the tour had their big tournament director meeting out in Palm Springs this week. I talked to a few of them out there. Big J was supposed to come. He did not. Uh, he, he got canceled. He got white from the slate. But, you know, there was some vitriol at the beginning of the meeting. I think there was probably less at the end. I do think 
hey, the Torah has every right to kind of get some of these host organizations in line, or get them, get them, you know, get the least efficient ones that are the five or 10 at the bottom of the rung that aren't doing a great job or that are run inefficiently, kick them in the ass a little bit. I got no problem with that, but don't start stealing from the charities. That's big. I, not, I agree with that. That's not the left. TC way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's wrap it at that. We are going to cut now to uh, an interview from earlier this week. We recorded this Friday uh, with Mike Wan and Martin Slumbers talking about uh, the impact, the, the rollback that came out this week, um, a lot of different other avenues they explored, what the future of this looks like, why it's happening, why it's happening to everyone. We asked them all that we possibly could, and we greatly appreciated their time. Uh, and then after that, we have Kevin's uh, article. If you didn't catch it on our website this past week, we will have the oral version uh, of that here at the end of the show. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and enjoy Mike Wan and Martin Slumbers. All right. What was announced earlier this week was a departure from what was proposed in March, a departure from what you guys said in March, specifically, Mike, I'll, I'll point this one at you because I remember specifically you saying both on our show and on a lot of television networks, you said, we surveyed the people that it came back overwhelming to say, Hey, don't touch the recreational game. The recreational game is getting touched with what is proposed uh, this past week. What changed in, in, in between March and uh, in this past week, Mike? Yeah, if you if you know if you really follow the whole process, we've had uh, we've had change at the end of every comment period. So as Martin and I've said, you know, you can't you can't take in comments from all throughout the industry, uh, and then not actually sit down and talk about what of those comments could you incorporate. On your specific question, uh, when we went out with the model local rule, we actually thought that was a pretty good response to comments we had heard the year before. Uh, and in the model local rule, we were you know we were pretty boisterous about the idea that we could really address distance just at the high end elite level and leave the rest of the game completely untouched. And if I was being perfectly honest with you, the, the strongest feedback we got across the board, I, I wouldn't just say tours, um, but PGA of America, and, and quite frankly, a few of the manufacturers as well, not all, um, really asked us to consider to not break the bond. As one, as one person said, the magic between what the, what, you know, what the tour players play and what's available at the recreational level. And, um, and, and probably more importantly, and more specific to your point, uh, we were told in you know no uncertain terms that if an MLR is how we're going to address this and the MLR then leaves the decision making in the hands of elite competition, um, that at least in certain of those elite competition leaderships, they were not going to implement. And uh, as I've said before, this was never a paper exercise for Martin and I. We're not trying to check some uh, employment box. Um, we're actually trying to make a difference for the game long term. So creating a solution that really wouldn't be implemented uh, is no solution at all. So. Um, so that, that, that forced us back to, okay, so how are we going to do this in an across the board change, knowing that an across the board change re required us to dramatically lessen the speed in which we were testing so that we had very little impact on slower swing speeds, probably, uh, lengthen the time to the marketplace. Cause if you're going to ask manufacturers to address more than a ball, but across the line of balls, we really had to give them time to do that. So uh, I'm actually pretty proud of the fact that uh, our proposals have changed after each piece. It um, it just it proves and it's true that uh, we heard a lot of feedback and a lot of it we didn't want to hear. It wasn't all the stuff we liked, um, but we actually had to incorporate that feedback. And so uh, that's that's the specific. And we didn't think a model local rule would be implemented, and a non-implemented uh, model local rule doesn't really do anything to protect the game long term. It fits into this whole the narrative as well that both Mike and I have been talking about is. You know, from our, our, our research work over the last six years, we were both of the view, or both our organizations as well were of the view that we needed to, to, to do something and we needed to make a change. 
And we debated drivers, changing drivers. We debated the model local rule for the ball. Um, but the one thing that, that were both of us said consistently is there are only three options. Change the whole game, change for the elite game, and do nothing. And do nothing was something that both of us felt very strongly was not an option. There are a lot of amateur golfers, a lot in my mentions. There are a lot, I'm, so, I'm sure, sending mail to both of you guys that will say, I've never walked off the golf course and been like, I hit it too far. None of the people I play with ever think we hit it too far. What, Martin, what's your response to people that, uh, if you could help me out, because I don't know what to say to these people, but what is your response to somebody that gives you that feedback to say like, hey, there's no problem for me. Why, why are you guys doing this? Well, I, I think you go back to what, why, why are we doing it in, uh, in, in the round? And it, to me, it's this concept, when you look at hitting distance over a long period of time, it is inexorably going up. If you go back to 1980 and track year after year after year, it is consistently going up. Yes, there are plateaus, and, but after every single plateau, it rises again. And uh, we see that there is no reason to believe that that is not going to continue. And in fact, when you follow some of the amateur golf, the elite amateur golf, you know, you've just been with us in, in Australia and you saw there's the next generation. Well, they're, they're even faster. Um, and that's the way they're being trained. So there is an opinion, no, no doubt that it's, it's going to rise. What we, what we then get to the point of saying, okay, so what we're trying to do is to protect the integrity of golf courses. You know, you can't just keep on building tees further and further back. Some places just run out of property um, to be able to do that. Secondly, there is a, a balance of skill and technology in the game that's important. And we've always felt that uh, no one piece of the game should dominate. And the third thing is we just absolutely have to be cognizant of our environmental responsibilities. And, you know, just making bigger and bigger golf courses to be able to accommodate not just the tour place, and I think that's where some of the dialogue is wrong. It's not just about the tour. It is a much bigger picture. We absolutely are affecting thousands of golf courses around the world. And I think in terms of the recreation golf, what I would say is be very clear. We have done a lot of testing. Uh, we've talked to a lot of people, a lot of independent people as well. And we have also had golf balls submitted at these higher, at higher swing speeds. And what we've learned and had corroborated is the impact of the recreation golfer is less than five yards. So what we're actually saying is to really to all the players, one is, quite frankly, you're not going to notice it because it only really impacts your driver. As you go down through the bag, the impact is less and less, um, and it verges down to zero once you get down to a five iron, five iron and less in their hands. But we're asking you know, all, all golfers to you know, give a little to make sure that we protect the, uh, the bigger picture about the game and the bigger picture about the future integrity and um, evolution of, of the sport. I can think of of multiple, uh, you know, angles to go down in terms of what the distance issue, parts of the game, the distance issue touches, right? But I'll, I'll start this one with you, Mike. If you had to pick one, re you know, you can't. I, I could give you five to six, maybe ten reasons to like, you know, there's there's a distance issue in golf, but you only get to pick one, and you have to you have, you get one answer to give somebody of like, here is why. There's a distance issue at golf. What would you put at the top of the list, number one priority, if you only had to, were able to give one reason? So you know me good enough to know that one is a, <laughs> one is a curse. So that's that's hard. That's, that's why I'm challenging. <laughs> I'm putting you in a box here. Uh, my one reason would be walk 30 years forward with me. Just no change. Let's just step forward 30 years. Here's the graph of the last 50 years: shortest, longest, average players at the highest end of the male elite game. 
Here's what's happened. The graph is virtually undeniable. And, uh, and we're currently testing at 176 mile an hour ball speed. The highest people playing on tour right now, top 25 are averaging 183. Um, the actual top of the top are averaging the high 180s. We're seeing these young kids coming out of Walker Cup in the low 190s. So, so let's just go 30 years forward. Because so, everybody wants to talk about there's no problem because they all talk about today. So 30 years from now, if we're 30 yards longer than we are today, um, are we okay? Uh, and and uh, and so are we. Are we just simply going to pass by another, you know, another uh, series of venues and say uh, sorry, but not not sorry? Uh, and this is not a PGA Tour thing. I mean, we're talking about qualifiers we run all over the world, state amateurs. I, I have to tell you, junior amateurs are, are are challenging venues for us now going forward in terms of the the carries that we're looking for 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 bunkers to literally be in in play. So. Um, I've always said that it's it's really I've worked I've worked for stakeholders, uh, I, I've worked for shareholders, I've worked for members, I've worked for players. It's really difficult to have a quality conversation about thirty years from now. Really easy to have a conversation about thirty weeks from now. Easier to have a conversation about thirty months from now, but really hard to have a conversation about thirty years from now. And that's why the RNA and the USJ are established the way they are. No conflicts, no financial ties. Uh, to really have an unbiased view and be the ones that can spend most of their time worrying about the long term, uh, the game that you know my kids' kids will inherit. And if we simply, if if we simply going to say, yeah, if that's what it takes to host these events, we're either going to have a really small number of of courses that can hold these literally uh, thousands of events that happen throughout the world in any given year, or we're or we're going to make some change uh, to be more responsible. On top of the fact that if we just tell everybody build for the future. Uh, which is where you know when you get into conversations with Jack Nicholas and Gil Hans and all the other you know when they're when they're being asked by these owners to build these courses at lengths that they know they don't really need, but they all believe they might build something that could host something huge in ten years. They're just you know adding length, adding property, uh, adding you know maintenance and and uh, and nutrients. It's just uh, it's just so short sighted. So if I had one, I'd say go thirty years with me and let's stop talking about thirty days from now or stop talking about twenty twenty eight. Let's start talking about 2048 and and join me on realizing that doing nothing is a real mistake. Yeah, if I had to kind of just sum that up for people as well, I mean, because we've heard so much conversation about obsolete golf courses, bringing back obsolete golf courses. And this, this I don't think, addresses that, right? This puts a pause on things. And I don't think this means, hey, we're now going to play the, you know, the U.S. Open at, at, at Cypress Point all of a sudden, right? This is uh, getting getting legislation through that looks like that would be a lot more challenging already than it, than it already, uh, you know, already has been. Martin, I'm curious, either it, it, would your answer be any different as to what the number one issue is, or if you had to put a number two then on the list behind uh, what Mike has already said uh, to highlight the, the the top, top, top issues of, of why the, that something needed to be done? Yeah, I, I think Mike's is the, is the number one is the number one issue, and and and, and he expresses it very, very eloquently. And your your point there about you know this is not going to suddenly bring courses back onto the roads is is, is absolutely correct. But I'll, I'll give one other one other aspect, which is linked to not just the environmental issue, not just the property issue, but you know, in in club golf, you know, increasingly we're hearing, you know, the the amateur golfers is more and more um, playing the game and stronger and stronger, you know, are not as good as hitting the ball uh, hitting the ball straight as maybe the top players are. Is you know, there's a lot of courses having to redesign holes because for safety reasons. And balls traveling, you know, excessive distances left, 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 and right. So the, 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 this is a whole picture about looking, looking forward, and 
you know, our job is to look forward. It's not to be instantaneous. It is to worry about the future of the game. So I would put that number two reflective of the point that our job is to look forward. I've spent some time with you down in Australia, Martin, and I, 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 we found some common ground, I feel like, in the uh, a bit of the romantic side of golf, right? And I, I, I think uh, some people are having trouble with the idea or the phrase de-skilling, uh, you know, as it relates to golf. And, and, and it, it, I, I under, understandably, I think the casual fan can have uh, – it's a it's a tough sell for me to be like, hey, watching at least at the professional level, watching the guys hit mid irons into the green is going to be more exciting than hitting short irons into the green, right? And I think it is. Uh, do you find that to be a tough sell amongst the, you know the market that you guys are are are, go- are governing? And could you kind of explain a little bit about because um, I've done it as many times as I possibly can, but about what your view as the, as the chairman of the RNA is on the balance of skills that are required. And particularly interesting I've found in what you guys have published is to say, regardless of how these distance gains are happening, an increase in these distance gains are not healthy for the game and for the balance of skills and how it relates to the game. I'm wondering if you could kind of, you know, explain that better than maybe I can. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I, I have long been talking about the balance of skill and technology. You know, there is no doubt in my mind that technology coming into our game has been a it's been a fantastic thing. You know, when I learned to play the game, the driver was the hardest thing to hit in the bag. Today, it's not. Um, many would argue that it's the easiest thing to hit. I think the same thing I would say is that, contrary to some some commentators, I absolutely believe that hitting the ball out of the middle of the driver and hitting it at high speed is a huge skill. Um, but we are, we did in this. Uh, um, announcements this week did actually flag that we're also interested in the forgiveness of drivers um, and rewarding center hits versus off center off center hits now we've not figured out how to how to do that effectively we we have one solution for it but that's probably not the best solution at the moment and so that that very much comes back into the play but to your broader point you know when you look back hundreds of years golf was always it was a mixture of things. It was a mixture of driving. It was a mixture of hitting it out of terrible amounts of sand dunes in, uh, uh, back in the sort of the, the links days. But it's always been made up of driving, approach shots, wedge shots, short game and putting. And if you look at the great players of, of our sport, very rarely does one of them uh, dominate in every single angle of that um, and every single piece of it. They, they're, they're, some of them are outstanding drivers but not such great wedge players but they work they work around their skills to be able to create um the best product that they can do so you get a very heterogeneous game you know everyone was different um i think where we are today and where i feel is that as as this technology has got better which is a good thing and and i think most people i cannot overestimate how good technology has been to help our sport but that and the question of golf balls and the fact that we have not updated our testing mechanism for 20 years actually means that the driving has become overly dominant in the elite, in the elite game. And if you look at whether you look at it as strokes gained or, or in any other, in other, any other way of looking at it, hitting the ball a long, long way and not necessarily straight was actually the, is actually the best way to to um, uh, have have success. Now, yes, you've got to you've got to be able to putt, and to be able to chip, and do all those other things. But I do think it's the the game could become quite homogeneous, and we've seen that in a lot of sports. You know, there are a lot of um, top sports where 
the, the, we figure out the biomechanics to make the best athlete. And you only see that size of athlete. And I think that would, the, goal, the game of golf would, it will be worse if we don't have that variation and not just have one, one type of way of playing. You know, you did a nice job in the question before kind of pointing out what this, what this um, change doesn't do. You know, it doesn't bring a bunch of courses back out of the folder of which we can't do. Another thing this change doesn't do is um, uh, we won't impact scoring. Uh, meaning we don't set up the golf courses every day at, at any of the global tours. So if any you know global tour says, I hate this, I like the way we were scoring before, and they want to play from tee markers that are 13 yards closer than they played from in, in 2027, they'll just eliminate this. And, and I've said this, I was in an argument with the, with the LPGA professional the other, the other day, and I said, I, I know a lot of PGA professionals, and I know a lot of LPGA professionals. They all have a lot of different points of view, but they can all step five steps. So if they don't like this, um, just pick up your white tee, walk five steps and put them back down and you can make this a non-issue. So um, whether you're talking about tour level players, elite level players, you know, elite amateur competitions, uh, we don't we're not in charge of how you set that up, where you put the tees, how long you play it. Um, and we really would love it, Martin and I, to wake up in 2028 or 2029 and watch an event that still has 15 yards of room behind every tee, that there's room for the game to actually uh, continue to evolve because it certainly will. But this has never been about scoring. Martin, I've never been in a in a meeting and talked about what you know what under is winning on what course because we don't really in, in charge of that. Um, so I just want to make sure that uh, pe people say no matter how you feel about that stuff, uh, this this has always been about distance pushing the boundaries of the game, um, not just you know not really about today but about the future. Um, but if people don't like this and want to implement their own change to it. They can make it a non-issue. That's totally up to them. And I think it, it understandably, the average golfer does not, it, they can tend to conflate scoring with shot value, right? I mean, Martin, you can attest to this, the setup at the Open Championship at St. Andrews, the pins are in places that they wouldn't be in probably if the balance of the shots was different. And if guys weren't coming in with wedges, it wouldn't make sense to put pins up on a plateau and, and, and things like that. And there is a, there's a lot of things that have been done to combat distance that have probably only exacerbated it over time, narrowing fairways, growing up rough and, and all of that, again, is just like a separate conversation from, you know, how far the ball actually goes. And I, I, I it's interesting uh, thought I had, too, as well, is I just keep hearing about guys are getting faster, getting more athletic. Just look at like the average speed going up, uh, you know, on the PGA Tour and, and, and whatnot. And things have gone on long enough. Like we're 20, 20 kind of plus years into like the, the golf ball evolution and, uh, and then 30 plus years when you talk about titanium drivers and all that stuff to say, there is some trends that we can see, and I've read the study that came out, I think, from the PGA Tour to say, like, look, I mean, guys are getting taller uh, on, on the PGA Tour. And I, I said, like, whoa, that, that's alarming there because guys aren't getting taller. Guys are getting replaced by guys that are taller. And guys that there's enough, you know, the average swing speed coming up on tour, guys aren't swinging it faster. There's a, a level of player that's getting replaced by guys that are swinging it faster and it has become a bit of a prerequisite to say, like, the hurdle you have to clear to bypass this whole group of guys that have learned how to bomb it is it's 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 a huge hurdle and like that that replacement we've seen it happen already it's not like hey this is going to happen it's already happened and i'm I, I i feel like i had a different conclusion reading that than people have have uh have come away with i'm curious either of you guys reaction to that i i i think uh, that i mean we we looked very much into that at um, as part of our sort of research programs before we got into deciding what we wanted to do and you know that's part of my point about the game could become homogeneous if it ends up that I mean, I always look at rowing 
a completely different sport. Rowing in, in, in Great Britain has been an enormous success over the last 20 odd years. But they figured out biomechanically that actually the best rowers have the, this following physique and then they can teach them to row and be successful. And I think golf, if we didn't move forward here, golf could easily fall back into that, that process. But I keep want to keep coming back to two two points, if I if if I may, on, on the link to this. One is we have not changed the rule about how a conforming golf ball works. What we've done is we've changed this standard and updated it to the modern day. And the existing rule is 20 years old in terms of speed. And you, you were talking about change. Anyone who's watched golf knows it's changed in 20 years. And that what this does is bring bring that back, you know, bring it up to the mo- to the modern game. But it's the same type of concept that we had 20 years ago. And the second thing that you know I keep reading is people say, well, you shouldn't do the golf ball; just grow the fairways, grow, grow the rough longer, tighten the fairways. That, from my perspective, that would be the ultimate irresponsibility as a governing body. Why would we outsource the cost to the facilities who are already? Um, trying to work out that the uh, struggles between revenue, revenue and cost—that's just bad governance um, to be able to do that. Yeah, we can do it for the elite championships because we have more control and we throw more money at it. But you can't ask thousands of golf courses to just just do that. And frankly, I think if you put the rough long and fairways tight for the average golfer, that's going to be a much bigger impact on their enjoyment of the game than actually hitting the ball five yards shorter, which they frankly they won't notice because the longest and the shortest of the drivers that they hit in one day is at least 20 yards. So I just wanted to make those, those two additional points on your question. I, if I had to bottom line it for me, again, talking about, we're talking about a lot of trends in the game, right? And, and guys swinging it fast and athleticism and all this stuff. But I, if I would back up to that, I would say, hey, it, a big cog in that kind of trend is the fact that guys have permission is what I, they use I always word to wail on the ball to swing hard at the ball and the risk reward for hitting driver it, it comes down to like hit it hard it's not going to go that far offline because your off center hits don't go that far offline and figure out the rest from there whereas if in a, if it was a 240 cc driver versus 460 cc guys would swing differently that's that's my case on you know kind of why a big reason why things have trended this way you guys have looked into this you guys have have talked about how you're going to continue to look into this you talked about this with us in march mike about the difficulty of, of fixing driver heads i'll throw this back to you then mike what what has evolved on that front since march what are the challenges in fixing driver head and it again i'm on i'm rambling a little bit here but like this one i find to be a lot more challenging to convince the amateur golfer like this would be a good thing for the game right i I don't know if we need more amateur golfers hitting it way more offline. So I'm wondering, you know, is there a chance for bifurcation along that line down the road? And uh, just kind of your reaction to all that. Yeah, if you're if you're a history buff and you've kind of followed the uh, proposal process of the USGA and RNA, and maybe that's a pretty small audience now that I think about it as I say that out loud. From the very beginning, when we first came out after the distance insight and started into proposals that we wanted to hear back from the industry, uh, the first one we really brought to him was a model local rule for a driver that would have a reduced sweet spot or reduced um, you know, forgiveness and, quite frankly, reduced face rebound or what we call CT, characteristic time, um, with the idea being that um, at, the, at the absolute highest end of the game, you ought to really be rewarded for center hits and there ought to be some, some disadvantage for just going out of this hard as you can if you can't hit the sweet spot. 
Um, and we really, you know, conceptually loved that idea, probably still do if Martin and I were being honest with you. The reality of the research was in order for us to make a difference that would really matter at the elite level, that difference is, is quite significant. It, it, it isn't as small as you just in your ramble kind of said, you know, suggested. So you've got to go pretty darn far. Uh, and in going that pretty, you know, pretty darn far, you um, you realize that to get to a difference, a real difference maker at the driver club, um, in order to not make them then three woods, five woods, seven woods, hybrids, um, and uh, you know, better, you actually have to go all the way down the bag. So if you started talking about a model local rule for a driver that was really meaningful, in other words, worth doing, we'd probably say to elite uh, male players, you have to have a different set of fairway woods and hybrids. And again, maybe serviceable at the PGA Tour level with five trucks sitting just across the street of your driving range, but not really serviceable when you start talking about tours all over the world or LPGA or college level, and certainly not for elite amateur events where we're seeing the same distance. So, um, and then on top of that, when we went back and had some conversations with some of these tours and some of the you know PGA of America and, and others around the world, you know, this concept of MLR was really was really challenging. There's virtually no way we could in incorporate a driver like that across the game without really negatively impacting the game. And, you know, Martin and I have top of our list. I mean, sitting over there in my corner right now, uh, you know, uh, minimal minimal impact on the recreation. Can't, can't, can't kill the fun, can't kill the excitement to be here. And so when we start talking about a driver at the MLR level, first of all, we got into something that really wasn't serviceable across the tours. And second is this something that we really couldn't do across the board. So um, the reason we put it in this release this last time is we left it in there is because for both Martin and I and our technical teams, we're still looking. You know, we 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 think there's something here. We just haven't found the something yet. And every time we've gone to the industry and asked for feedback, we've had a combination of stuff, you know, we already knew and a combination of stuff we really didn't know. So we tried to keep it fresh even in this last release because we want to keep hearing from people that might have uh, unique ideas. So. Uh, you're right. Uh, we agree with you. Conceptually, it makes all the sense in the world, but we haven't figured out a way to do it sort of and be serviceable in the real world of elite play and certainly not uh, possible if it was an across the board change. Bad interviewing here, but I'm just going to uh, I'll make this statement here and I'll, I'll give you your reaction to it, Martin. This this seemed like the driver head seems like something that would have been a lot easier to do 20 years ago. What, what's your what's your reaction to that? We've 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 had these driver heads for twenty years. It's really 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 hard to, for people to picture going back to something with a small head that goes farther offline just because of how much tees have moved back over that course of time. What's your reaction to, uh, you know, kind of why why we stand where we are uh, with the distance issue in twenty twenty three? I think you know hindsight's always easy in 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 these things, and we're all victims of our history. You know, because should we should we or could we have changed? the ball 15 years ago yeah we we did we could have but we didn't could we have not allowed the 460cc drivers to to grow and i think uh, i think they were like 360 something like that before before that yes and but this goes to the heart of what mike and i and our teams have had to really wrestle with through this is is thinking through the the the, the laws of the unintended consequence so when the when the driver was allowed to go to 460cc did anybody think that this is where it would end up? No, nobody, not even the manufacturers did. Uh, it was a way of making the driver, you know, um, a little go faster. That was the original bigger driver. It was it hit, hit it, hit it further. It wasn't talking about forgiveness and it's been metallurgy changes that are really um, improved upon that. Whereas we've developed the, these ideas and this decision that we've announced this week. And then the, also the, the notice about continuing to look at driver 
you know, we, we have to balance up the, 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 the three things of we need to have a real impact in the elite game because if we didn't, then we'd be failing. We need to make sure that there is a little bit, that there is a minimal impact on the recreational game because the last thing we want to do, and the USG and the RNA are the two biggest investors into the growth of the game, growing the game around the world. So anyone who keeps thinking that Mike and I want to actually damage the recreational game is just talking nonsense. You know, we, we're the biggest investors into the into this sport all the way around the world. So we absolutely didn't want to hurt the recreational game. And but we had to give a little bit of impact to be able to get the impact on the on the um, on the elite side. And we have to look forward in, in terms of the unintended consequences of our, of of uh, decisions that we're making. And it's hard. And we won't know until 20 years, you know, 20 years time whether we are right. But I'll bet you we're more right than wrong. Um, and uh, that, that's the that's the function of um, doing what we what we do for a living. I'll, I'll react to your comment too, Sally, which is I've only been in this position two and a half years, but I can promise you this. The term, it would have been easy to dot, dot, dot when it comes to regulation of equipment changes is, does not exist. So this, <laughs> this, this is not easy. It wouldn't have been easy then. If you easier, think all, maybe. Maybe easier. But, I, you, know, the, uh, you know, this is quite a process and uh, everybody looks at change through their own lens. And I don't blame them for that. Uh, but we certainly don't get common feedback. It's funny to me when I was at the golf gym a couple of days ago, off air, one of the commentators said, well, I guess every ball manufacturer said, and I don't even remember what he said after that. And I said, every ball manufacturer does not provide the same input. I mean, not even close. I mean, just for whatever it's worth. If you look at their their comments about, you know, our most recent, uh, you know, change, those aren't the same. So, um, but that's just true. So, and I would also tell you that, you know, being back at that time, I was a tailor-made at the time, I think was kind of in the era that you're sort of talking about. Back then, we were making these products thinking these are really going to be game improvement products for the recreational player. Uh, the pros uh, and the top elite players were asking us for smaller headed versions of the same one. So at the time, really didn't envision top players playing some of those clubs. Look, jumping forward today, God, it seems like that would have been natural. But um, pros weren't asking for the oversized heads you know, uh, back at the, you know, back at the turn. So it's, uh, it's interesting now to jump forward to think, you know, that, and I think the USGA and the RNA, again, I wasn't here, but we were in dialogue with them. Uh, they're always trying to walk the line between how much do you clamp down on innovation and how much do you want a little more innovation to seep into the game? Because it does make the game more fun, more enjoyable, more, more capable of getting started. So, you know, never right, never wrong. And I've said this, you know, my favorite term around here is governance is hard because no matter what you do, half the group, uh, you said to me, I bet you were getting a lot of emails today about uh, people that don't like this change. And I, I said, yeah, and just as many from people that think we totally failed and should have done more. There's no uh, both sides feel like it, it was either too much or not enough. And, and I guess that's governance. Again, I probably should emphasize, I do definitely understand that this this stuff is really, 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 really hard. And the, the overwhelming thing here is that none of this is ever going to add up to 100, right? Because probably what helps the amateur game and make it more enjoyable, our technological advances do help that. I, I, I do believe that. And at the same time, technological advances can hurt uh, the product of the professional game, right? And it, 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 there's an effect, cause and effect of everything, right? And I think the more that driver heads, the balls go farther and the driver heads uh, allow forgiveness, it does make the amateur game more enjoyable, but at the same time, it has an effect on the pro game that I personally, um, some people can disagree, I personally don't think is is palatable. And I think that it's, that's, 
that's where I led to bifurcation. But when you came out with bifurcation, I was like, man, that is messy. Like it's tough. It's just really, really, really tough. <laughs> my favorite is uh, standing on a driving range. And I do this a lot and people make fun of me for this, but you know, when a pro says to me, um, why just don't make it any farther just this is as far as it goes just draw a line today nobody gets to go any farther and i said how do you want us to do that i mean that guy down there hits it to you know 326 you hit a 319 that guy down here hits a 312 is so just, that's the line now or once it gets to 326 should i put a governor and the balls fall out of the sky and then you know in 10 years everybody will be at 326 and driving will be like kickoffs in an nfl game you just kick it in the end zone put the ball down and so uh, we want Amateurs, pros, elite, uh, elite athletes, uh, male, female, if they want to chase distance as an advantage, we want to provide that. It's it's athleticism. So we want to make sure whatever we're putting in, there's still an opportunity. If you want to go through speed training and figure out how to play the game at a higher speed, if uh, if you can use distance as an advantage, we don't want to take the game and eliminate the driver from the game. So, so this whole just stop it here, uh, I can think of nothing I'd, I'd less like to do than just have a governor where the ball falls out of the sky at a certain level. And then 20 years from now, that's just that's just driving. Um, there's nothing exciting or fun about that. People say to us, you just don't like drivable par fours. And I'm like, when's the last time you were at a US Open where I didn't provide a drivable par four? I mean, we and if and if you think I'm taking drivable par fours out of the game, move the tee up on whatever yeah. drivable par four you used to have. So we we don't want to um we don't want to take the excitement of trying to be longer than your than your friend than your peer than your competitor out of the game and and I've said this many times um I, I have a feeling 20 or so years from now maybe less you know maybe a lot less we'll be right back here talking about distances that are about here and if that's the case that would really be a success at least in my mind because at least we won't be talking 20 years from now about being 25 yards longer so can we just expand a little bit on the recreational game for a second because there's a lot of people talk about, and, and and we have a little bit in this in this conversation, the recreational game in the context of playing on a golf course, but the game is much bigger than that. We talk about the, the, the there's a hundred million people now consume golf, and I'm very careful about using that word consume and not just play, because the the real growth in the game has been has come through the off course type of golf, you know the the short courses, um, the top golfs. Um, the simulators that some of them in, in, in Asia, the, the adventure golf. And all of those are actually a real part of our game that they're as important as, you know, playing on a golf course. And so when even we all fall into the trap and we talk about recreational golf, thinking about it's those who are playing on an 18-hole golf course. Well, no, it's a much bigger game than that. And um, the, this this distance doesn't inf- impact the, that, that part of the game at all. In fact, if you go to a driving range, you're hitting a ball that's, you know, um, a lot shorter than a, a premium golf ball already. That's what I think, back to what you were saying, Mike, I think there is the perception among some people that this is about attacking the longest hitters. And I, I want to stop that in a track and say, no, it's about, hey, the longest hitters, we can have a long drive be 310 yards. And there's a downstream effect of that that is way healthier for the game than a really long drive going 340 yards, right? I think that's that's where, like, if I was to, to, to bottom line it, it's that. And we could talk about, we could go down a million different rabbit holes of what that means and what that does to mid-irons skill testing and what that does to pin positions and what that would do to, to you know, the longest players being able to just blow it over bunkers and not be able to move tees back farther. It just has a very pervasive effect. And um, I don't I don't know if you've licked it on this one. I don't know if you've got it right. We'll see when we see the golf balls, right? We, we don't see any of that. So flipping over to that side... Good. Go ahead. I think the good news, Sully, is we're, we're using the exact same test method 
we've been using essentially for 50 years. So when somebody says to me, how do you know longer will be longer and shorter? How do you know it's not, because we haven't changed anything. We're, we're, we're using the exact same test method. So today, if you can generate more ball speed and therefore generate more distance, uh, you do. Um, it, regardless of sort of, all we've really done is change that test methodology in terms of the speed in which we're hitting it. So yes, uh, will the longest hitters on tour be a little shorter? They will. Will the shortest hitters on tour be a little shorter? Uh, they will, but uh, but advantage for length uh, will exist, and it won't just exist on tour. It'll exist at any level. The dif- the difference is length is relative. It's relative to who you're competing against. I don't think anybody was any less awestruck when Tiger was hitting 309 yard drives versus somebody that was hitting a 290 yard drive. Um, and and you know I've stood behind I've stood behind Rory many times and watched him hit a drive. I couldn't tell you when it flew whether it was 336 or 326. I just knew it was unbelievable, and um, and it will it will be unbelievable regardless of the number. I remember when when you took the job, Mike. We you, you came on the show, and I was you know I was I was like, all right, man, it's time to do something about distance. And I I've, every single time I've talked to you, or every single year this has gone on, I've understood another layer of complexity that goes into it. Which one of which I remember one of the things you said was, hey, look. I mean, uh, you know, manufacturers, if I, when I'm running an LPGA tour event, uh, the, you know, if I'm s- setting up a new one, I'm knowing that maybe I forget what you said exactly, but maybe 34, 30, 40% of the revenue, um, of the sponsorship of that event might come from an equipment manufacturer of some kind. And then there is a, a stakeholder, there's many stakeholder interests in this. You've been on the manufacturer side. Now you're on the governance side. I'm wondering if, if you could, uh, just shine a light on, uh, you, again, the perspective you've had from both sides on what what this means for manufacturers, what this means for testing, what you guys have gone through in terms of your relationships with them and feedback periods with them and making sure that they end up in a healthy spot at the end of this and understanding the fact that they do have an important role and, and you're not trying to kill their bottom lines. Just give us a little bit of insight into how that has worked uh, and evolved over your career. Yeah, there's uh, there's probably two questions in there, so let me break them into both. Back to our original conversation of the importance of manufacturing in our business. I think it probably came from you or somebody else said to me, why don't you just create a ball? And that's the ball, like tennis, like football. You know, that's the ball, that's the spec. Everybody has to build it the same way, um, which is certainly doable. We've never really told manufacturers how to build anything. We've created the test standards and then they can do, because by giving the test criteria and then they can do what they want. We create variety. The variety is good for different kinds of golfers. And, um, and we really believe in that. And because of that, uh, golfers get this incredible variety and incredible R&D that comes at it from different angles. And that's really important to our game. You know, with tennis, there's just one ball and you can buy from a bunch of different manufacturers, but generally speaking, there's there's one ball. So there isn't really this significant of market there. In our case, when we turn on a, a, a you know, televised golf event, yeah, 25, 30% of the advertising that's coming from manufacturers. They really help invigorate the game and, and people get excited on Christmas day thinking there might be technology under the tree that can that can help them. We don't, we don't want to get rid of that. So um, I think that, you know, that's, that's an important part of this. We didn't want to miss as it relates to your question about manufacturers, we needed to, and I think, I think any manufacturer you asked to will agree. We did. We really did have to kind of walk this with them, you know, in this process that's six years long, a lot of people, I remember at the U S open this year, one reporter asked me why so fast. And, you know, uh, if you know me, you know, six years and fast don't really go together, but so when we first went out with this, Sully, we Martin and I were fully convinced that we were going to test every golf ball at the optimum flight conditions of that golf ball. We call it optimized flight condition because you can do that now or the manufacturers can do that. And so some balls fly better at 12 degree launch angle on this spin rate. Some fly better at 11. But it, right in the very beginning, we sat down and across the board, manufacturers explained to us the challenges that would create in their R&D process, the unnecessary cost 
the time. And we looked at that and said, you know, for a yard or two on an individual ball, that 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 juice probably isn't worth the squeeze. But when we were fully committed, we love that concept. But if you're going to go out and ask manufacturers for things. So uh, the other thing that happened is, you know, when, when, when manufacturers said to us, if you're going to make a change across the board, we need another year in a perfect world too, relative to this 2026 timing you're talking about. Um, neither Martin and I were excited about 2028. But if you're really going to listen to them and kind of take this in. And so um, what I can tell you, having lived on the manufacturing side, is if you go back to two years ago when we first started making proposals about uh, ODS, which is our overall distance standard ball testing, coming in at higher ball speeds, thousands of engineers started working on this thing 24 months ago. And the reason I know that is we've already seen balls coming from each of our last areas of interest. But when you put a thousand, you know, engineers in the in the, in this world, some of the best in the world on this between now and 2028, um, we're going to see some incredible product over the next four or five years. And and they know it. I mean, I remember ably saying to me, "Are we done?" And I said, "Yeah, this is the final." He said, "Well, then we're going to go innovate." Innovate. And I said, "I figured you would." Uh, so we needed to respect the time. We needed to respect their input. And and now I think it's uh, and now I think if anybody thinks we're going back to the 1990s in technology, man, they're they aren't spending time with the R&D teams that we're spending time with. This is um, this is going to be unique. And once these guys know what the what the boundaries are, once you tell them where the out of bound stakes are, they'll always impress you with their abilities. I, I have zero doubt that'll happen again. So to close that down, because I completely I completely agree with every word Mike just said. Then, but it is really important for, for for you and your listeners to 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 get this clear. Our job is to be neutral. But we have, and in doing that, we have listened to every single one of the manufacturers and all the points they've made. Now, have we reflected all that one might may say? No. Have we reflected the industry that we think makes sense? Yes. That is our job to be that, that neutral there. But I think this, it has been said to, to us both that this process over this period of time is probably the single most consultative um, uh, equipment decision that's been made it been made in our game, and uh, I think that is really important for people to really understand. There has been a massive collaboration, but at the end of the day, the RNA and the USJ's job is to make a decision. I'm curious. I'll, I'll start with this one with you, Martin. You guys are not. You guys are two different people. You represent two different bodies. I'm curious if we could get a little uh, maybe insight into your guys' process. Are there examples you can give us of uh, areas where maybe you two have disagreed, or you know, your teams have disagreed, or, or how have you worked out internally? Uh, you know, I, I I I struggle to believe that you guys have been a hundred percent, a million percent aligned in every step of the process. But I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of an insight into how your guys' internal process has worked on that front. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. We have not agreed on everything, but we have agreed on the final outcome. And I think that's just just to be made, made very, very, very clear. You know, that we both have some very talented um, uh, scientists and engineers who work in our equipment standards who have been doing it this for a long, long time. And the way the way it's really worked between Mike and I is we knew, we, we, we knew what we were trying to get to, which is, do we make a change in regulation around golf balls? And it was, do we make a change? And if we make a, if we don't make a change, what are our options? And we would, he and I would talk a lot, or I would talk less than Mike, but um, we would talk a lot around kind of the, the sort of the, the higher level things and then work with us, our teams to answer specific questions. And we went back to the engineers who really, you know, the clever guys 
You know, they joke around equipment regulation isn't um, isn't rocket science, but, but it does help that our head of regulation, equipment regulation, used to work for NASA. Um, uh, so, you know, these these guys, they go back and they come back to us and say, Martin, you, you, you're wrong. You need to go and tell Mike he's on the wrong the wrong path. And he would call me and say, my guys are telling me that you're wrong, Martin. We looked at hundreds and hundreds of different options. It's been an incredibly professional. It's been an incredibly challenging period of time. Um, and we've iteratively, from our thinking and then using our scientists and engineers, come to a logical, sensible, simple answer. Yep, I think that uh, that makes sense. What's what's the you know we, majority of our listeners are here in the U.S. and, and, and you know we've uh, we, we've talked to Mike more on the show than we have you, Martin. So what what's the global reaction been? I mean, what's uh, you know what have you felt uh, since this has has been rolled out as far in terms of reaction? Do you know one one of the things uh, we did in the precursor to this, we did our distance insight report was actually we went out and did a lot of market research into people's perceptions about distance and. Um, is it important and what aspects of it is important? And uh, we did it on a global basis. And one of the things that came out quite clearly is in, in, in the UK and the Europe and sort of the, the developed golfing markets in Asia, they are much more interested in the balance of skills uh, in a golfer and less interested in the distance um, issue than, um, than is prevalent in, in America. So... Now, maybe that's our history. Maybe that's the, the way we play golf. But the, the reaction around the world has been we needed to do something. The environmental issue is pressing. It's really important. We've talked to all of our major affiliates, um, the countries that are associated with the RNA, um, and they are um, uh, all pretty much to a, to a man on board um, and in line with what we, we've done and um, um, are very, very supportive. Mike, how would how do you um, evaluate or determine uh, success here? Right, if if how how will you walk away? You know, and, and in what year will you say like this was a successful change that we made? And how will you evaluate that? Yeah, first is on the difference between Martin and I. Dress code is the number one difference between them. <laughs> um, the uh, you know if if we. You know, it's going to be a long-term run. It took us a long term, long time to get here. You know, we've talked about the distance insight in 2018. And in 2000, at the end of 2023, we're talking about implementing in 2024. So um, this has not been rushed and the, and the outcome of this change won't be rushed. If we are, uh, if we are 15 years from now, uh, at distance levels at the elite male game, similar to where we are today, I think both Martin and I would say uh, it was well worth it. If, um, if, if, it, if that lasts. So I had a really good tour player friend of mine say the other day, and this is his favorite phrase, what if you're wrong? I mean, I guess he knows me well enough to know that that's possible. And he always says at the end of whatever thing I say, what if you're wrong? And so here it came and he said, what if you're wrong? And I said, and, and I, I said, wrong about what? He said, what if distance increases aren't going to continue? What if we've really sort of plateaued out at the highest level, which is a whole nother, you know, no data to argue that, but so be it. And I said, well, if I'm wrong, and we implement this change, and this is the last change we'll have to make for the next 40 or 50 years, and the game's just fine, I'm going to be so excited that we did it. And I said, but what if I'm right? And what if a, what if a yard a year, which no, never alarms anybody, but over 30 years, a yard a year is, is really alarming. 
Uh, what if I'm right and uh, and we followed your advice of just sit back and let's wait another 12 or 15 years and see what happens? Just think about whether or not that is a better sport in the world we're going to be living in in 30 years. Is is our sustainability and footprint going to be acceptable in Southern California, Vegas, Arizona, Portugal, Australia? It's um, the risk of what if you're wrong is so much more significant. The risk. Uh, of, of what if you're right is so much more significant because the what if you're wrong here is really not that um, not that challenging and uh, quite frankly I hope I'm a little bit wrong and that this thing can really be you know the last change for a long time our goal in governance and this will sound strange to you Sully and maybe to your listeners but our goal in governance is to is to identify challenges long term get in and find realistic solutions and then get out of the way and get out of the way for as long as you can. You really don't want to hear from the referees on every play of a football game or the umpire in every play. And so what we try to do is make governance changes. One of the things we've heard consistently, and you'll hear it from people that'll scream they don't like this, is why don't you just make a smaller change and then look at it more often, which is you know just, just up your speed a little bit and then maybe look at every five to seven years. And I'll just say what I say to everybody who brings that up, which is that is uh, that one, would be really difficult, if not impossible, to do to the manufacturers. So, so make a change across your board, across your line. And five years from now, I'll tell you if I have to make another change across your line. Really disruptive in the marketplace, really expensive in the marketplace. And I think the same thing for players. I don't really want an athlete to feel like they have to go through this every five or six years. I hope you do this once in your career um, if we can kind of figure this out right. So a little bit, a lot more often, sounds phenomenal on a PowerPoint slide or in a, in a presentation is really challenging in the marketplace. And so we've um, we've stayed away from that because we want to govern by get in, make a change and get out as long as you can get out. Yeah, I think, again, I could keep you guys for a lot longer on this, but two points to make when you talk about the, just the, the 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 one yard of creep uh, year by year. Uh, creep's the wrong word because that's a separate <laughs> issue of what you, of what you guys just uh, discussed as well. But one player averaged 300 yards in the professional game in 2002, 98 players average that uh in 2022 to 2023 and i think 50 of the drives hit this year in 2023 were 300 yards or longer i mean more than double what was the case just 20 years ago 50 percent is that what you said 50 percent. that's insane <laughs> that's absolutely Sally, i don't know if it's worth pointing out we didn't really talk about ct is that something that's worth explaining sure you, you be you be your own interviewer here because uh I, I failed on well, that we, front tell us about ct spent a lot of time on the ball but one of the things that came out of this process is i don't think martin or i were really when we got in the very beginning we're thinking about addressing some form of ct creep when we started this process but in this process of industry feedback we were both a little surprised that we heard from multiple tours uh, and actually multiple manufacturers that this idea that, a, that so for CT creep for everybody else. So CT for us is characteristic time, which is a fancy way of talking about face rebound. And, and the characteristic time means how long does the ball and face stay together before it comes off? And so, you know, currently that time limit is 257 microseconds. So the ball can be on the face for 27. Anyway, that, that sounds like I'm, you guys know me well enough to know that I'm not technical, but I can at least explain that to you. And so the longer the ball is on from, the face, the more it launches, correct? Right. The more it can kind of rebound, more yeah. like a trampoline effect. The longer yeah. it's on the trampoline, the higher it shoots up. So we've set that, and that limit's been there a long time. One of the things we heard from manufacturers and even tour players was, I've been using this driver for a while. I think it's hotter, and I think I'm hitting it longer. I'm just not sure if it's still conforming to the, to the limit, and not knowing uh, causes some anxiety. Now, we go out throughout the year, both Martin and the USGA, and we do on-site testing. So we'll show up on a Monday or Tuesday. We'll test clubs both in the bags and in the trailers. And if there's heads that have already creeped past the limit, we'll take them off. 
But as, as some of the tours were saying, that's kind of too late in the process, making changes on Tuesday. Can you do something earlier in the in the assessment process when you guys assess a driver as conforming to the limits? So we started looking at that with our with our group. And so what we've said is just like the ball, we're not going to change our limit. That 257 is still that 257. That's the high end of CT that you can have on the face. But if we see a driver, and we're actually going to start this in April of next year, so starting in April of 2024, if we see a driver submitted and that CT level is 251 or higher, what we would consider the high margin, the edge of CT limit, uh, we're going to require more samples from that manufacturer. We're going to take those samples through multiple tests. One of those tests will be hitting the faces of those drivers multiple times, so 150, 200 times at speed to see what happens to the face and the forgiveness. Does it actually creep? over the line. And if it creeps over the line, then we're going to have to work with the manufacturers more. I think what will happen now that the manufacturers know that's the process is they'll probably less likely to manufacture right to the edge or they'll, you know, they can all do this testing in their own process. So they'll do their own testing and they'll know before they submit it to us how much a driver will creep over time. Again, this was not something that was driven by the RNA and USGA, more of a something we were asked to look into. And I don't think this is going to have, you know, this isn't 10 yards of impact, but mostly just to provide uh, comfort and lessen the cost to some of the manufacturers. Because if they felt if everybody was pushing it to the limit, they had to push it to the limit. And if you actually had creep afterwards, it was making everybody a little uncomfortable. So uh, I give I give credit to the industry for asking us uh, this is no different than green re green reading materials that the industry came to us and said, let's provide some standards. Otherwise, you know, we don't like what this is doing in terms of pace of play and time of the game. My reaction to all that, and if I had a suggestion, your guys way talking about this on a podcast, way easier than governing it. That sounds really difficult. And I really enjoy my job of just talking about it and throwing ideas at you guys. <laughs> well, in, uh, in, in Mike Juan bingo, if I get to say CT three times, I get like at the upper right hand square. So I'm excited we got there. Uh, I'll close it with this with you guys each, you know, we, anything we haven't talked about any lasting impressions. I'll start with you, Martin, of, of what you'd want to leave listeners with either on state of the game or what the changes that you've made, or, uh, you know, what, what, what you would want people to walk away, uh, with. From this with yeah i i think i'd just like people to walk away with a very very simple and, and succinct message which is and there's a lot of um there's a lot of dialogue around and you know one journalist said to me actually this is the biggest rule change that's happened in the social media area um and so there's you know there is a huge amount of dialogue At the end of the day what i people to realize is, is come back to what were we trying to do uh, we're trying to ensure the integrity of the game of golf in its broader sense we're trying to ensure the balance of, uh, of skills and we're trying to uh, be cognizant of our environmental responsibilities. And that's, that's our objective. It has impacts um, across the game. We think that impact to the recreational game is very small, and we, but we do recognize it does have an impact. So we ask people to bear with us, but it is important to re realize that what we're trying to do is to protect the game for the long term. Anything different than that, Mike? Yeah, I would just say um, in, the, in the world of social, social media, uh, be careful of the alarmist. There's a lot of people out there that don't want to change. I get that. So they all kind of look for the one nugget or true, true or false or based on nothing that gets everybody riled up. Um, we're talking about five yards or less for the average golfer. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, nine to 13, 11 yards for the average pro golfer. Uh, this is not rolling us back to the 80s or 90s. 
Um, about a third of the golf ball models that are in the marketplace today are, go are going to still be under 230 yards of total distance in 2028. So there's going to be golf balls that people play that could still be out there. I wouldn't be shocked if they had some change. Like I said, when all these engineers start working on, on what's possible, I have a feeling that there'll be improvements made. We've pulled golf balls and we do spot testing and golf balls and tour events and elite mail events all the time. We've got uh, 10, 11 models of balls that have been used on tour you know, in the last uh, 10, 12 years that in these new test results would still fly at 320 or less. So people tell you we're going back to some sort of yesteryear era of wound or, you know, a, a different world is just um, is just alarmist, trying to create enough excitement to try to push back. Um, I know that people consider us bullies sometimes because because we have to make changes to the rules, but we certainly face our share of bullies too, who want to try to create enough anxiety to stop us from doing what we really believe is the right interest. There's there we have virtually nothing to gain here. The only thing the RNA and the USGA knew for certain on Wednesday when we went public is that people would like us less. That's the only thing that we knew for certain. And so with Martin and I, Martin and I talked this weekend, and Martin said, any reservations? And I said, none, other than, you know, I'm a guy who would like to be liked, and that's over. Um uh so so the the, op the option here of saying, geez, this is really going to be painful, like you said, wouldn't it have been easier? I think there's no there's no surprise that we don't do this more often because this is hard. It can be disruptive and it's tough on your brand and on your, you know, on your own ego, but not doing that. If you don't have the heart to really govern and really think about the game long term, then you're the wrong person for the job. And so um, I'm really proud of the fact that Martin has pushed me along the way and I pushed him. First breakfast I had with Martin. Uh, which was uh, seminal during the uh, Walker Cup. And he uh, he said to me, I just want to make sure you know, as you enter the USGA, that my perspective is we can do nothing to uh, to upset the momentum of the recreational game. If there's going to be a recreational impact, it's got to be minimum. It's got to be minimal and something we can minimize with, you know, with picking up a tee and walking forward. And I knew from the very beginning that because uh, that, that was the thing I was worried about and I was brand new walking in. So um, I'm glad I had a partner in this. This is hard enough to do on your own. It's much uh, easier to do with somebody. But uh, but anybody who thinks the USGA and the RNA wake up every morning and think, you know what we really like to do? We'd really like to go and announce this. This is this is tough stuff, but not doing it is tougher. Yeah, I would say um, just because something is unpopular, and I think this has been and will be unpopular, it does not mean it's wrong. Like that's that's where a lot of governance lies, right? It doesn't mean you you know you have to make the the always popular decision. I'll do something that I'm not sure many people have done to you guys so far this week. I would congratulate you on what you uh, what you've pushed managed to push forward. I know, you know, there's I'm, I'm probably on the side of maybe you haven't done enough. I, I know everyone's going to you know fall in on, on on one side of the line, but I will say uh, this is definitely not a reason to do nothing. Um, you know, and uh, I would I would congratulate you on getting this through because as you've outlined in this, it is extremely extremely challenging and. And there, there is no perfect answer, and you will never find a perfect answer. You will never get a 100 out of 100 on the test score from the entire golfing uh, golfing audience, and that's that's part of what your guys makes your guys' job interesting and very interesting to talk about. And I thank you guys both for uh, your time and outlying it and and all that. But it's been an exhausting week. I'm ready to get out on the golf course. I'm hoping uh, hoping you guys can see the golf course as well this weekend. I certainly will. Thank you very much indeed uh, for uh, giving us uh, time on your show. Thanks, Sal. I appreciate it. Hey folks, Kevin Van Valkenburg here, uh, Noling Up's editorial director. Uh, if you haven't checked out our website, nolingup.com, we have lots of writing and videos and uh, essays and reported pieces there. Uh, our column from this week uh, is about John Rahm and the rollback and the role the fans play in all this. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we'll catch you next week.
I'm often hesitant to assign much weight to anecdotal evidence, but this week, during one of the busiest seven-day stretches in the history of professional golf, I received a text from a friend that stopped me cold. We don't play golf together as much as we'd like, owing to our busy work schedules, but he follows the game closely and reads about it constantly. He listens to podcasts, watches videos, then shares them with friends. He is, in simplistic terms, a golf sicko. He also belongs to what is arguably the sport's most coveted demographic. He owns his own business. He has disposable income. He isn't married to any particular political ideology, and he buys new clubs as often as some people buy golf balls. He wanted to let me know he was fed up with the professional game, done with it. He still loved the sport and still looked forward to teeing it up together, but he wasn't going to watch anymore. He might tune in for the majors, but that was probably it. The PGA Tour and Liv, all of it had started to feel a little gross. Everything going on, whether it was John Rahm's departure to Liv, the squabbling over billions of dollars in equity in a potential merger between tours, even the governing body's decision to try to curtail distance, had left him feeling used. The fan experience, he wrote, is secondary at best. And fans don't like getting fucked with. As someone who makes a living writing about golf and frequently commenting on the professional game, I would love to pretend my friend is an outlier. He might be mad now, but this too shall pass, as the idiom goes. In recent days, I've come to realize he is more likely the tip of the iceberg. It is impossible to understate how many people have been turned off by what's transpired over the last two years, by the litany of decisions that feel driven by greed, narcissism, and stupidity. I came into this week thinking I supported the USGA and RNA's rollback proposal. I had done the reading, weighed the complexities, and felt like it was a prudent decision. By week's end, I began to feel like it was just one more instance where fans were being asked to pay for the sins of the professional game, whether it was in yards or dollars or time. Remember baseball after the 1994 strike, my friend asked me? If golf does the damage I think they're doing, it may take another tiger-like figure to bring people back. So how the hell did we get here? The highest level of professional golf, for starters, has completely lost touch with reality. Golf is a niche sport. It will always be a niche sport, certainly outside of the majors. Deep down, golfers know this. They are aggressively uncool compared to other athletes. They get to have long careers and they get to rub elbows with wealthy, important people, business tycoons or heads of state, but their skills don't move the needle. We know that live ratings have been laughable, so let's ignore them for a second. Let's take the PGA Tour's most important event, the Players' Championship, as Exhibit A when we examine the allegation of golf's cultural irrelevance. In 2023, the Players' Sunday broadcast drew 2.83 million viewers. That was up 11% from the previous year. Do you know how many people tuned in to watch Ohio State play Michigan in college football's marquee regular season matchup? 19 million. When the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles faced off recently, it was watched by 29 million people. The most important event on the PGA Tour drew about 500,000 fewer eyeballs than a game between Iowa State and Kansas State. Are we really supposed to believe, based on numbers like this, that Rom's $450 million contract, which who knows the real number when accounting for clauses and equity, is driven by a real market? It's asinine. 
When the Saudis came along and started looking for ways to launder their global reputation, a bunch of golfers suddenly became convinced they deserved to get paid significantly more than they had in the past. To be fair, that was their right. But in doing so, they have decided to take whatever goodwill their skills have built up over many years and light them on fire. As easy as it would be to point a finger solely at those who went to live, there are very few innocent bystanders here. Those who stayed with the PGA Tour are now mud-wrestling over different piles of money and control. They do not seem to care if the sport, at least the professional version of it, is irrevocably broken in the process, as long as a handful of them achieve generational wealth. I understand, in a micro-sense, why Rom went back on his word and took Liv's money. He almost certainly looked at the mess that is the PGA Tour and realized he was under no obligation to support that clusterfuck of ego and uncertainty. I can't pretend I know Rom well, but I've been around him enough to know he is driven by pride more than money. He did not feel sufficiently valued by the PGA Tour, so why help them wade through a murky future when someone was dangling half a billion dollars in his face? With all the private equity sharks circling the PGA Tour at the moment, many of them whispering in Tiger Woods' ears about ways to box out the Saudis, you can understand why Yasser El Ramayan, the chairman of the Public Investment Fund, felt he had to make a bold chess move with Rom. Whether the Masters winner is a knight or a pawn probably doesn't matter, though I'm sure Rom sees himself as the former, not the latter. In a macro sense, I wish Rom would have remained true to his word, because he is among the most thoughtful, principled, and interesting people in professional golf. I fear he'll be neutered now that it is part of his job to be a mouthpiece for an autocratic government. Perhaps he'll prove me wrong, and I hope he does. It'll be interesting to study his temper when his 2024 U.S. Open prep involves three rounds of team golf in front of dozens of fans at Golf Club of Houston in sweltering conditions in June. If the CW network is still bothering to count viewers, they can put me down for that one. I will almost certainly continue to follow professional golf. It is a big part of my job, after all. But I am not so sure about the dozens of people I play with regularly. They aren't deeply entrenched in the pointless daily arguments of golf Twitter. They don't really care about OWGR points and certainly couldn't name members of the four aces. They like to squeeze in rounds when they can, have fun and give each other shit, drink a few beers during or after a round, and flip on football when they're finished. It's not a choice of supporting the PGA Tour or live. It's a decision to ignore both. They might gamble a little, but a light bulb has gone off recently and many fans have begun to wake up to the idea that almost no one involved in this corporate Game of Thrones thinks about them at all. For all the lip service paid to growing the game, it hasn't led to less expensive equipment or access to elite private courses. Broadcasts are still choked to death by commercials, to the point where it made the Ryder Cup borderline impossible to watch. PGA Tour purses have grown so disproportionate to revenue that tournaments almost certainly won't be able to meet the charitable obligations established in previous years, meaning communities will get the short straw. And because professional golfers threw a tantrum when the governing bodies proposed the idea of bifurcation, now amateurs are looking at a future where their version of golf won't quite be the same. Will the game get harder? It's possible. At the very least, they're going to lose some distance because the best golfers on the planet recoiled at the suggestion that they give up some of theirs. For years, we've been told that the biggest argument against bifurcation is that amateurs, when surveyed, 
believe there is an essential link between regular golfers and professional golfers. We want to believe we all occupy the same universe. And when we daydream at our local Muni, we can pretend that we are John Rahm trying to win a major. That bridge between the two worlds has long been deemed imperative. But what happens if the opposite becomes true? What if regular hacks are so turned off by the selfish nonsense of professional golf that they start to realize we don't need any of it to love and appreciate the game? It feels like that day may be here sooner than most pros realize. Some, I suspect, couldn't care less regardless. They will be set for life. So why sweat it? Pity the next generation of professional golfers if this current infusion of oil money ever dries up. We might have to pass the collection plate around for them. There may not be enough fans to support the husk of what's left. I'm Kevin Van Valkenburg, Editorial Director of No Laying Up. If you enjoyed this, you'll find additional essays, videos, and reported pieces by visiting us at nolayingup.com. We'd also encourage you to join the Nest, our community of avid golfers. Nest members get a 15% discount in our pro shop, access to our vibrant members-only message board a link to our monthly Nest podcast, as well as the chance to sign up early for our Roost events held all around the country. Have a comment? You can email me or any of us at kvv at nolangup.com. Thanks for listening. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most.